Let us pray. Holy and gracious Father, we thank and praise you for the gospel. We thank and praise you for the good news. We, Lord, it, it pains us. It fills us with great pain to know that there are others who do not know the gospel, who do not know of your love, of your grace, your mercy. Help us, we pray this morning. Help our witness, Lord, so that all people, men, women, and children, might know of the good news in Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. In our reading from Romans 2, we hear this line, or Romans 9, verse 2, we hear the Apostle Paul say, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, for us who've been following the book of Romans this summer, it's very different. These words are very different than what we've heard in the previous chapter. In chapter 8, chapter 8's full of, of wonderful promises, promises such as these, there is no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, or the Spirit gives life to our mortal bodies. Or in verses 12 through 17, we are the children of God and now fellow heirs of Christ. Or verse 28, all things work for good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes. Or verse 29, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Or verse 31, God is for us. Or finally, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Those words of chapter 8 are full of promise, full of hope, full of joy. And then we go to chapter 9. This chapter is full of pain, sorrow, anguish. In fact, Paul says, I have great sorrow. I have unceasing anguish. I kind of like these words, I must say. They're kind of refreshing for me. And they're refreshing not because I want people to experience sorrow and anguish. Well, at least not most people. <laughs> there might be a few that I want to experience sorrow and anguish. Just kidding. What's refreshing, though, is the honesty of these words, as well as the love that Paul has for his people that, that's driving these words. I think too often we think of love like perfume, flowers, and walks along the beach at sunset. These things are all nice, they're romantic, but they're hardly love. I once had a girlfriend who thought life was supposed to be only romance. She was sweet, she said sweet things, she wrote me sweet notes. God bless her for being so sweet. However, only after a few weeks of dating her, I broke up with her. My pastor asked why, and I told him, you know, candy is sweet, but if that's all you eat, you're going to get a stomach ache. And I felt that way with her. I had a stomach ache. She was too sweet. I think too many people think Christianity is all about sweetness. People think Christianity and Christians are people who dress nice, speak nice, act nice. They picture Mr. Rogers or Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. Christians, you go to big Christian churches and you see just how nice people act. They're so polite, so well-spoken. And I'll tell you, Christians have the whitest teeth I've ever met and the biggest hair. It's amazing. Well, obviously, most Christians haven't read Martin Luther. 
or the Apostle Paul. <laughs> They're not always so nice in their language. Now, I understand why the world might think Christians are, are so nice. I mean, our best-selling books are Your Best Life Now. And our, evangel our evangelists on TV wear $5,000 suits and say things such as, turn your scars into stars. Isn't that nice? And yet it's this kind of niceness that causes the world to see Christianity and get a stomachache. Christianity, like love, is much more than perfume, flowers, or walks on the beach. Christianity is messy. It's scandalous. It's filled with pain. Christianity is about Christ dying on the cross in order to save a lost and condemned world. Of course there will be pain. Lots of pain and struggle. And that's where we find the Apostle Paul in Romans. He has great sorrow. He has unceasing anguish. And it's all over Israel's rejection of Christ. Now, why is this important to Paul? Well, Paul's a Jew. These are his people, his brethren. The people who reject the gospel are his brothers, probably literally his brothers, his sisters, his aunts, his uncles, his nephews, his teachers, his friends, the neighbor who he grew up next to. These are the people who are rejecting Christ. And so for Paul, this is as personal as it gets. He wants them to get it. He wants them to know it. He wants them to be captured by the gospel just as he was captured by the gospel. And as he's seen that they're not, he's filled with pain and anguish and sorrow. Now these words are important for us because I think as Christians we often mess up our priorities. As Christians, we often fall in the trap of focusing on things that just really aren't that important. In fact, I have a friend who I love dearly, but I found out recently he preached a sermon on, on how we should not complain. And as I thought about the sermon, I had a couple thoughts in my mind. First, I thought, you know, I hope a lot of people complained after the sermon, because that'd be fun. <laughs> Second, I thought, though, you know, that's not that important. And third, I was going to remind him, I'm going to remind him of this. Remind him what our professor at seminary said, Gracia Grindall, who should always say to us, did Christ have to die in order for you to deliver that sermon? Christ does not have to die in order for, us to stand, for me to stand up and say, stop complaining. Anyone can say that. Everyone can say that. Christ didn't die for that message. No. Christ died so that those who are lost and condemned might be saved. We need to remember that. For Paul, it's personal. For Paul, it's important. For Paul, he's not going to mince words and he's not going to waste words. He's going to go after what's very important. And what's important is that his kinsmen, his brethren, those who he loves, that they might know Christ in fact, the Apostle Paul says something so important in verse 3. And you can see the anguish when he said, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He wished he was cut off, 
cursed, stricken from the book of life, just so his family, his friends, his neighbors might accept Christ. Now, Paul's not the first man to, to wish this upon himself for Israel's sake. Way back in the book of Exodus, you remember, after the people of Israel made the golden calf and they were worshiping them, Moses came up to the mountain. Imagine Moses, under his breath, was going, those Israel, what are they doing? I want to choke them. But before God Almighty, Moses says this, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, Lord, forgive them their sins. But if not, blot me out of your book that you have written. In other words, strike me, curse me, bring damnation upon me so that Israel might live. This is personal stuff. It's important. It matters. But you guys all understand this. We understand this. All of us have sorrow over loved ones who reject Christ. All of us have pain over those who, who renounce Jesus, who walk away from Jesus. We would give anything for them to know Christ. We've cried after conversations with them. We've labored in prayer for them. We've petitioned God. These are our flesh and blood. They mean everything to us. Strike us, Lord, so that they might believe. I can't help with the timeliness of the Williams visit, because I know you see this often. Muslims who've, who've become Christians, who, who are torn apart over the fact that their kinsmen don't know Christ. Even more, their kinsmen might actually want to harm them for becoming Christians. And yet the sorrow inside of them compels them to go out and to stand for Christ and to, to use whatever means possible so that their brothers, their sisters, their mom, their dad, their own children might come to Christ. And so they pray and speak and do anything and everything so that their kinsmen might come to faith. And I bet usually it's not being nice. <laughs> it's saying what needs to be said. Well, this sorrow impacts all of us. And this sorrow is terrible. And it causes often for us to fall into despair. When our loved ones reject Christ, we often start questioning our own faith. We start questioning ourselves. We say, maybe, maybe it's my fault. Maybe if I had a better witness. Maybe if I was more winsome in the way I spoke. Maybe if, if I hadn't worked so many hours trying to provide for the family, maybe they wouldn't have such a perception of the church. Or maybe it's their fault. You know, they're always rascally growing up. Why won't they get it? You want to choke them into getting it. Or maybe, just maybe, it's God's fault. God, I know what you promised in, in the waters of baptism, but, but can we really trust your promise? Is your yes really yes? 
Maybe it's not. We've all been there. We've all had those questions. God, why aren't they coming to faith? Bring them to faith, Lord. Do whatever it takes. Reject me. Bring them to faith, we ask. You can even sense this despair in the Apostle Paul and what he says next in verses 4 and 5. He writes about Israel. He says, theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs the divine glory, right? That Shekinah glory, that pillar of fire. Theirs are the covenants, the covenant of land, of people, of to be a blessing, being blessed to bless all the world. Theirs is the law, the Torah. Theirs are the temple worship and the, and the promises of God. Through them, the ancestors came, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and, and through us, Israel, Paul's saying, the Christ came. Surely they should know. Surely they should understand. Surely they should get it. But they don't. As John tells us, he came to his own, and his own received him not. So despairing. And yet, I wonder if we step back just for a second and look at these words. Are these words a testimony of Israel's failure to get it? Hey, they had all these advantages and, and they didn't get it. Or maybe, just maybe, these words really are a testimony of God's faithfulness, God's fidelity, God's heart that will constantly break into this world in order to love his people. I mean, God won't stop simply by giving Abraham a promise. He gives it to Isaac. He gives it to Jacob. And God won't stop when, when Joseph sold into Egypt. Oh, they've made a mess of it. No, God sends Moses and leads him out to Mount Sinai. And God won't stop even after Moses breaks the first tablet. God gives him the second. And God won't stop as he sends judges and he sends them worship. And God won't stop as he sends them promises. And God won't stop even after he sends them Christ. I mean, nothing can separate us from the love of God, even, even Israel's faithlessness. And so maybe just maybe this is a testimony of, of God's willingness to come down and grab them and not stop until he has them. In fact, this passage, as much as it's about Paul's anguish, is it not truly about God's anguish? An anguish that stops at nothing to save us, to save you? If it means putting on flesh, so be it. If it means searching in the wilderness for the lost sheep as a good shepherd, so be it. If it means becoming a curse, that's what God is willing to do. As Paul tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. God won't stop until he has you. 
And so even now, in this very place, God is breaking in. In the Lord's Supper that we're about ready to eat, Jesus will enter into bread and wine for you, sinner that you are. In fact, God is even inviting you in the word to come to the table. Come, you who have no money. Come, you who are sinners. Come, you who have broken hearts. Come, you who are frustrated with God, who don't think you're worthy. Come all the more. Come and receive bread and wine. Come and receive Christ's body and blood. There is enough to go around. There's enough for you. There's enough for the whole world. Get busy inviting people. Bring them to church because there's always enough. There's enough for them. There's enough for you. There's enough for your neighbor and your loved ones. There's enough for the whole world. In fact, it's not about being nice at all. It's about God's love for you. A love that won't stop until he has you and your children and their children and your neighbors and your enemies and everyone else. Thank God for that love. In Jesus' name, amen.